0: I invite you once again this morning to join me in the book of Jeremiah, a little less ambitious project this morning. Last week we took in 10 chapters, today only three. Genesis chapters 21, 22, 23, and we'll do a selection of readings here as we begin. Jeremiah, 1st chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pashur, the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, saying. Inquire of the Lord for us. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls and I will bring them together into the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. Afterward, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants, and the people in this city who survived the pestilence, sword, and famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I said before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. How's that for dark? Okay. Come on over to now chapter 23, at verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel shall dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And then chapter 23 once again. Verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you, And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Now, Father, in these moments, by your Spirit, grant to us that we'd rightly see, hear, understand, and apply this, your word. Work by your Spirit, Lord as you see fit this we pray in Christ's name amen you ever notice how it sounds when an orchestra tunes up at first a designated individual plays a single note and then everybody else in the orchestra ostensibly finds the same note and then once the note is found, they then go their own ways as they then adjust their instruments accordingly, and it is nothing but absolute discord in the warm-ups. And I have never yet known an orchestra who has released a single recording of their warm-ups. That's kind of how the first 28 chapters of Jeremiah come across to us. We hear some notes occasionally that are, okay, That's together, and then suddenly there's all of these different notes, and we were a little puzzled, a little overwhelmed. I mean, there's there's protests and there's judgment and there's sin and there's little tiny hopes of redemption. The immediately previous chapters we looked at last time were those of Jeremiah's protests, something of a summary, I guess you could say, of the lowest points in Jeremiah's ministry. It's not that things are necessarily better now, though this is sometime later. In fact, I'd say significantly later. What we see here is kind of a a sad succession get rid of one bad king get another bad king get rid of another bad king get another bad king and that just seemed to be the ongoing project Nebuchadnezzar deports one bad king and they end up with uncle Zedekiah by the way yes made that up Zedekiah is the last of the davidic line and when you read these chapters what you capture I think is something of this is anybody listening Is there anybody faithful? Is there anyone real? And Well, okay, let's use the term that is all abuzz today. Is anybody authentic? Folks, every time, I'm looking for authenticity. No, you're not. You just make me tired. You're not even authentic and you're seeking out authenticity. I'm just here to tell you, folks, I'm not sure that authentic is necessarily a glorious Character trait, authentic today seems to cover up a lot of being a jerk overall. Um, I know that's that's just my opinion, however accurate it may be. We read in the text, and what we see over and over again is this: people want the Lord to go easy on us when we sin. In fact, we'd like Him to get on board with our needs and our plans and ignore our sins, right? Lord, you know, my sin, I I know it's a problem, but I'm just trying to be authentic. How about you help me out? My friend, don't expect the Lord to act kindly when you betray your calling. And that's true across the culture. I'm here to tell you, my friends, and we've said it before, say it again. I think the timing here, the Lord knows what He's about. We're coming up on another election cycle, right? And Christians are far too often going to behave reprehensively in the next couple of years. And they're going to put their hope in places they ought not put their hope. Hope, and they're going to argue with one another and they're going to have falling out and they're going to forget they serve the king the king doesn't matter who's on earthly thrones ultimately or who's in an oval office or who's heading up a supreme court or anything else there's a king what we see this morning is kind of a succession of declarations of failure. The first one, I think you could call it basically very simply this, is the king listening. Now, chapter 21 opens with a kind of a surprise. It turns a spotlight on the final king, Zedekiah, one of the sons of Josiah, who actually wants to inquire of the Lord. And equally surprising is the response of Jeremiah who at the end of chapter 20, probably a dozen years earlier in real time, but only a moment ago as you read the book, was choked with his own despair at the prospect of the nation's doom, whereas now he's composed. His response is measured. The city and nation are facing their final agony. He even offers a gleam of hope. Maybe the Lord will help us. See how that chapter opened? Verse the word comes through Pashur and I'm I'm laughing about this because Pashur is the same one who had him in stocks, had Jeremiah in stocks in chapter 20 inquire of the Lord for us now this is all going to sound very sanctified for Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon is making war against us perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. <laughs> maybe, maybe Yahweh will get on board and like he did with the Assyrians whenever they surrounded Jerusalem years before, maybe he'll come in and just mop up all the Babylonians and everything will be lovely and we'll have a great festival and praise the Lord, we'll be happy. Revival will come. Mm. And then the word comes back. And the word is not good. The word is basically the rest of the chapter. The Lord does respond. Now you got to know, this is not making any friends for Jeremiah. He is in the middle of Jerusalem under siege. The Babylonian army is outside, Nebuchadnezzar's outside, they're trying to get inside. Supplies are running out. They're running out of fresh water, they're running out of food, they're running out of hope. Well, here's what the Lord says Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war, oh, good, yes, that are in your hands and with which you're fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. And I will bring them together into the midst of this city. And just in case you're missing the message, this is the Lord, I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath, and I will strike down the inhabitants, and you go through the list, and it's just horrible. Misery of a siege, sacking of the city, the slaughter of those who survive, the only people to survive. Here's his survival plan. You want to survive this? Go surrender. Well, what about all my stuff? Here's what you get. If you get out, you get the prize. You live. Stay, you die. Wow. And you get to that 11th verse, and to the house of the king of Judah. Now it's intriguing when you read the word house, those words house of Judah. House is used like three ways here. House can mean dynasty, that is the succession of those who were the kings of Judah. House can mean a place, House can also mean the court, those who were part of the royal entourage. And here's what he says, the house of Judah, dynasty, place, court, doomed. That's the end. Nothing's going to make it. Now you look at Zedekiah and when you read about him he's a tragic figure He has some respect for Jeremiah. He has something of a belief in Yahweh, a fear of Babylon, and an absolute inability to cope with advisors who are more strong-minded than he is. He just can't get it together. And we're not supposed to really pity him because he's behaving so wretchedly. He simply cannot lead to his consternation here, Zedekiah, Had divine intervention, God's wonderful deeds spelled out for him the very opposite of what he hoped for. I myself will fight against you. My friends, understand when the Lord says, I myself will fight against you, that is the absolute definition of a one sided confrontation. You never win if God is set against you, there's no escape, there's no triumph there's no truce. If God says he's fighting against you, you might as well lay down and die. You're doomed. Now this leads then in the 22nd chapter to something of a successional declaration about the kings in Judah. And it opens up saying, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David. And as you're reading along, you read about different kings. You come down to verse 11, and you read about Shalem, the son of Josiah. That's also the fellow known as Jehoahaz. And then you read a little further, and you read at verse 18 about Jehoiakim, another of the sons of Josiah. And then at verse 24, you pick up the fellow named Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim. He's also known as Uh, Jehoiakim this is what gets confusing about the king some of them have two and three and four different names so let me see if I can summarize this for you during Jeremiah's ministry he prophesied under Josiah Josiah had 31 years he prophesied under Jehoahaz also known as Shalom and he lasted an astonishing three months And then under Jehoiakim, also known as Eliakim, and he made it 11 years. He dies, his son Jehoiakim, also known as Jeconiah or Coniah, and he makes it three months. And then Zedekiah for 11 years. Now when you read through this prophecy in the 22nd chapter, here's what you find. Jehoahaz, verses 10 to 12, is doomed for exile. See, Josiah, at the end of his life, while well, he had been a good king, he made the mistake of taking up warfare and taking sides against Pharaoh Necho, or Nico of Egypt. And for his trouble, Josiah dies in battle. Now, again, Josiah was a good and godly king, but here's a place he made a mistake and this ends his life. Well, his son then takes over, Jehoahaz. Now, Jehoahaz, Pharaoh looks at him and says, he looks way too much like daddy to suit me. I got a sneaking suspicion he's as anti-Egyptian as daddy was, so he snags him, drags him into captivity, and he goes and dies in Egypt. He gets drained three whole months. Very short term. I know some of you have prayed for those kind of terms for political figures before. Now, after Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim comes up. And Jehoiakim, you read about him beginning at verse 18 and following. And notice what it says They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother. Or all oh, sister, he's gone. They shall not lament for him, saying, oh, Lord, or all oh, His Majesty." With the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Wow. Jehoiakim was known for dishonest gain, shedding innocent blood, oppression, violence. He built a new palace a few miles away from Jerusalem with forced labor and unnecessary extravagance. That's why it talks about more and more cedar, paneling it out, verse 14 and following. Nobody, nobody was sorry to see Jehoiakim die. Eleven years of him was 12 years more than they wanted. It wasn't good. And his burial burial of a donkey, and that's really what happens to Jehoiakim. He dies tragically, horribly, with no honor. Jehoiakim, if you'd like, could be the subject of Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, man, Who made me judge or arbiter over you? And he said to him, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones and I'll store up all my grain and my goods. Now, let me stop for a moment and tell you. To this point, he's not done anything stupid. The Bible's not arguing, don't make more storage if you need it. Here's where he gets in trouble. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, remember, what's he say to him? First word, fool. There's not your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose shall they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That could have been Jehoiakim. No concern for the Lord, no concern for the kingdom, no concern for integrity, no concern for righteousness. He's just, I'm king, I can do it, I have money. I can put people to work, They to do I say, because I'm the king. And he dies like a common animal. Jehoiakim, his successor, we're told in verse 24, calls him Kaniah. The only hope he has is exile. That's where he's headed. I'll hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. How lovely, right? And then Zedekiah. Zedekiah, the only hope you have, Zedekiah, is that Jerusalem lasts because when it falls, you're going to watch all of your children die right in front of your very eyes and then they're going to put your eyes out, blind you and drag you off into captivity. But you see, it's right in the middle of this. You could say right at the tail end of this thing about the kings. And folks, this is about royal betrayal. If you wanted a heading for chapter 22, verse 11, and chapter 23, verse 8, it's about royal betrayal. The kings have not done what they should have done. And this has always been the pattern throughout both Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom's history. The kings have failed. On occasion, they have done well. But the overwhelming majority of them were abject failures. They got more interested in power and money and clout and status than they had any concern for the Lord in his righteousness, or the people over whom they reigned. Friends, please don't for a moment think that politicians lining their own pockets and living for their own good is anything new. Welcome to life on planet Earth. But at chapter 23, something new. Now it starts dark. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock, driven them away, you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds. Now here shepherds is not about pastors, shepherds isn't about prophet. Shepherd in the Old Testament usually referred to kings. Leaders, I'll gather the remnant of my flock. He looks to care for them. I'll bring them back to the fold. I'll set shepherds over them. And then at verse 5, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David. Folks, I cannot without just my heart aching read that. I'll raise up for David. Now, in a sense for David in terms of the Davidic dynasty, but for David in terms of the man after his own heart, the one who even when he sinned would repent. You see, folks, we're not looking for perfect leadership. We're looking for accountable leadership, right? We're not looking for people who never make mistakes. We're looking for folks who would own it and repent and live righteously. And what does he say? I'll raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely. And notice the description. Execute justice and righteousness. His name shall be called the Lord is our righteousness. My goodness, this sounds an awful lot like what Isaiah said nearly a hundred years earlier or so. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes, by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity, for the mean. Of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness, the belt of his loins. It's not just looking back, it's looking forward because in the book of Romans, chapter 10, we're told Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1.30, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Christian, understand this. When you read this Old Testament text, you're not supposed to walk away with merely your head hanging down and thinking how dark it is and how awful it is. Oh, please, somebody, tell me something good. Because sprinkled even in the midst of the judgment text's, are words of joy and hope and encouragement. These kings have all been a train wreck. But there's a king coming who won't be. These guys have all been wicked. There's one coming who will be righteous. These guys cared for themselves. There's one coming who will care for you. And he will establish Righteousness. Now, see, that was royal betrayal. Just for a moment, look at religious betrayal. At Chapter 23, verse 9, concerning the prophets. Now there's the transition. He's no longer talking kings, he's talking prophets. My heart is broken within me, all my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord, because of his holy word, for the land is full of adulterers. And you start reading the text. You come down and you're told they speak visions, verse 16, of their own minds. They don't speak from the Lord. Verse 21, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I didn't speak to them, yet they prophesied. As the kings were entrusted with governing the people, prophets were entrusted with guiding the kings. If that had been only Jeremiah and three kings it might have gone better, but there was actually a number of prophets. Now there were contemporaries who left books such as Habakkuk and Zephaniah in Judah, Daniel and Ezekiel in Babylon, others who were called to speak God's word, but there were false prophets like the one called Hananiah and what we read here about these false prophets. At verse 9, when Jeremiah says, My heart is broken, it's not that he's grief-stricken, but rather he's simply staggered by the way the Lord and His holy words are treated by false prophets and priests. What's breaking his heart is when he sees those claiming to speak in the name of the Lord, prophesying lies. My brothers and sisters, understand something. I have much grace and tolerance For members of churches, individuals, lay people who may go wrong and go south and be confused doctrinally and not understand. That to me is a sad situation that needs mercy and grace and correction. But my friend, when you claim to speak for God, when you claim to be a shepherd of the people, when you claim to be a pastor, preacher, leader, prophet. And you will not hear and heed what God says. I have little but contempt for you. Because you're sending people to hell on the authority of claiming to speak for God. Jesus warned about false prophets, false teachers. Peter warned about false prophets, false teachers. The false prophets don't know the Lord's law. They don't pay any attention to what he says or what he says is less important than what they say. My brothers and sisters, bear in mind all around us there are people who claim to submit to the Word of God but the Word of God ultimately has to submit to what they think or what they claim to hear. Further, they're ignorant of his counsel. They're pretending to hear from the Lord. They are pretending to see visions. Verse 26, How long shall there be lies in the hearts of prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams, that they tell one another even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat? You see what he's doing there. Compare the fellow's dream versus what God says. One is straw, the other's wheat. Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. And then finally, this turn of phrase. Look at verse 33. He's still talking about lying, the treachery of prophets, treachery of religion. When one of this people or a prophet or a priest asks you, what is the burden of the Lord? Now, stop, burden of the Lord is usually a reference to a message to a prophet from God. He brought the burden of the word of the Lord to the people. So when he says, when the people say, What's the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, You're the burden. And I will cast you off, declares the Lord. Wow! <laughs> give me the word, give me the burden of the man. You're the burden. The word is spoken. God has spoken. You're the problem. Hmm. Nobody wants to hear that. Mm. You say, the burden of the Lord, thus says the Lord, because you said these words, the burden of the Lord, that when I sent you saying, you shall not say the burden of the Lord, therefore, behold, I will surely lift you up and cast you away from my presence, you and the city that I gave you and your fathers, and I'll bring upon you everlasting reproach and perpetual shame, which shall not be forgotten. Friend, don't claim to speak for God and betray the trust. Don't claim divine leadership and behave in ways that dishonor God. Don't claim to hear from God when you ignore His word. I can't fill in enough blanks with that one. Do you know how many lying prophets are abounding all over this nation today? I just heard from the Lord. The Lord just told me. I just got a word from the Lord. God have mercy. You want to hear from God? Open his book. Run from these lying peddlers of damnable heresy. Let me conclude this way. There is a tragic scene. And I think it just echoes Jeremiah in so many ways. There is a tragic scene at the end of the trial of Jesus as a pagan governor is pleading for his life. Now, have you, are you following this? The Roman governor, who does not care about anybody anything, is pleading for the life of Jesus. He's trying to strike a bargain. That was the day of preparation, John 19 tells us, about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Better a pagan, godless tyrant than the gentle reign of God's Messiah. You hear what they're saying? The one who said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will grant rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. No, give us Caesar. Give us Caesar's hobnailed boot. Give us Caesar's crosses of crucifixion. Give us Caesar. Friends, some of you, a bow in your neck, you're stiffening your back against the King of kings and Lord of lords and you think you're triumphing. You prefer the darkness in which you wallow at this moment to the King who would set you free. Oh friend, don't believe the lie Beware of the royal betrayal. Beware of the religious betrayal. Beware. Hear the word of the Lord. Well now preacher, you're not telling me that judgment's coming like came on Jerusalem. No, I'm telling you something worse is coming. And the worst that is coming is there will be no escape. There will be no hope. There will be nothing except everlasting shame. And contempt and loss. Run to Him. Make peace now. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved.